Hi, I'm Yaakov Katz, and welcome to a new episode of the Jewish People Policy Institute's Inside Analysis of the State of Affairs in Israel and the Jewish World. Mati, it's great to have you with JPPI. Thanks for joining. So uh, I read with great interest your article in the Free Press, uh, The Wisdom of Hamas. They understand the war we're fi- they're fighting. Many in the West still don't. And I thought it was really interesting and worth talking to you about that article, but also just tapping into your wisdom, your own wisdom, about um, the war, the media coverage, and uh, and how things look from your end. But why don't you start with just laying out the, the thesis that you made in that article, which is basically Hamas knows exactly what it's doing, but Israel's a bit sleeping uh, behind the narrative as well as the rest of the world. Right. So there are, I think, a few different things going on here. One is this actual war that we're fighting in Gaza, which starts on October 7th, and the outcome of which, I, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens over the next couple of months. But there's obviously something much bigger that's happening in the world, and it's something that um, that is being felt outside Israel. In some ways, I think it's being felt by Jewish communities outside Israel more than we're feeling it here in Israel. So obviously, something has really changed, and one of the things that we're discovering is that Hamas has a great deal of support, certainly across the Middle East, but increasingly in, in the West. And, and I think it's important to understand that Hamas is smart. It's not it's not a stupid organization. And I think we have to kind of try to appreciate what they think they're doing. And if we look at the, the state of the world three months into this war, I think we can appreciate that Hamas understood many things that we did not understand. And one of the things they understood was the um, the amount of support that they have. They, they, they don't see themselves as fighting a war against Israel necessarily, or a war to free Palestine. They don't really use the language of free Palestine, and they're not fighting some kind of tactical war for um, for short-term gain. If you look at their text and just listen to what they say, they see themselves as fighting a, re- a war that's religious in nature and kind of global in scope. And the enemy in that war is not Israel, it's Jews. And I think we have to take that seriously. And, and if we do, then we understand why they have so many allies, why an organization that carries out an attack against Jews will actually find many people supporting it. And that, I think, helps us solve what I think is one of the most interesting and strange and mysterious aspects of October 7th, which is why does a historic massacre of Jews trigger protests, not against the people who carried out the massacre, but against Jews? And this happens long before the Israeli response gets underway. So the piece is an attempt to put the pieces together. Um, whether I did or didn't, I'll let you and the other readers decide. One of the things that I love, I mean, you have this line in there, all of this shows not a miscalculation by Hamas, but an admirable grasp of reality. And, you know, there were a lot of people who after October 7th were saying, listen, Hamas, they miscalculated. They they went too far, right? They exaggerated in what in this attack, in the brutality, in, in the bar- barbarism of it. And they, they, they didn't think it would go as well as it did. And it went so well because of flaws and failures and the breakdown of chain of command or whatever happened on the Israeli side, but they never thought this is not what they wanted. And to me, it always, I had a problem listening to that because it's like, it's just the continued, what we call in Hebrew, right? The misconceptia. It's constantly just saying, oh no, we know better what Hamas wants than what Hamas wants itself. And you're saying in this piece, no, no, no. Hamas knows what it's doing. Am I understanding that? 
Yes, I think so. And it's possible that there was a tactical miscalculation. Maybe they didn't understand the extent of American support this time, or maybe they didn't understand how galvanized Israeli society would be this time. But they certainly expected a massive Israeli response to what they did on October 7th. And, and that should lead us to ask what they what, what their plan really is. Right? If, if they carry a mass attack against Israel, understanding that this will be the response, and obviously they have some kind of plan, or they're fighting a war that isn't the one we think that they're fighting. And, and I think that, the, that that's true. I think that they're fighting a very long war that's aimed at eroding and eventually eliminating the Jewish presence, maybe not just in the Middle East. And, and they've said that quite explicitly. If you go back to their charter from the 80s, the, the charter is not... I'm solely concerned with Israel. They explain in the charter that Jews um, are responsible not just for the First World War and the Second World War, but also for the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution, and that they operate through international organizations like B'nai B'rith and the Rotary Club. That's in the charter. And they peddle drugs. And, and it says in the charter, our war against Judaism is long and serious. I think more or less that's that's the quote. That doesn't sound like you know, an attempt to create a democratic Palestinian state or any kind of Palestinian state. Clearly, they see themselves as fighting a war against an evil that is represented by Jews and by Judaism. And Israel is one um, manifestation of it. But uh, but there are many others. And, and when you use that kind of language, you'll find a lot of allies. Many people in the world, maybe billions of people in the world, see themselves as being in some way at war with Jews. And that includes people who would see themselves as being on the right and people on the left and includes, you know, Russian nationalists and Ukrainian nationalists. And it includes the majority of the population of Indonesia for some reason, a country where there are no Jews. And it includes, you know, British labor unions and it includes the French left and it includes the French right. And it includes people in many different societies that are seemingly unrelated and that are preoccupied with issues that seem unrelated. And yet they all agree that one of their main problems is Jews in some form, whether they call it Jewish bankers or whether they call it, you know, the Jewish communities or whether they call it the state of Israel, they seem to believe that one of the most important things they need to do is confront Jews. So when Hamas carries out an attack on Jews, there's this kind of mass applause worldwide that took us off guard, but didn't take Hamas off guard because they understand that this is the world and we didn't understand. So I think that in many ways they did understand the lay of the land better than we did on October 7th. And the, you know, obviously I don't expect necessarily the the solution on one leg, but the 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 what could have Israel maybe done differently? I mean, one thing that that comes to my mind, and I don't know that this would have solved that, but very early on in the conflict, I had friends who were reaching out to me, journalists, writers from around the world who were saying, listen, you have to explain what you're doing. In other words, not you, Yaakov, but you, Israel, what is the end goal? And and I said, you know, my blood was boiling, as I'm sure yours was, and everyone else. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like this, that we have to defend it. We like they're they're massacring us. And it took me a few, maybe a week or two, to really wrap my head around this idea that if we don't articulate an end strategy, then the killing looks like it's just for killing and the destroying looks like it's just for destroying. And sadly, that's where we are now, 80 plus days into this war. So I'm I'm curious in 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 what you're talking about, the grasping of the reality, what could we have done differently? I'm not sure Israel could have done something differently. I certainly think we can do a better job at explaining what we're doing. And I think we'll, you know, both of us would agree that 
Um, this government has done a terrible job of that and a terrible job at many other things. I'm not sure that the handling of the war could have been done differently. I mean, the actual the actual war, no country is going to accept the kind of thing that happened on October 7th. It's clear that if we don't eliminate Hamas, this will be repeated. Thus, we have to destroy Hamas. If you want to destroy Hamas, this is what it looks like. I don't think we had a lot of wiggle room in terms of the response. I think that we're playing for concrete gain in the real world, right? That's what that's what we're trying to do. We have a threat. We're trying to eliminate the threat. Zionism, I think, always operated that way. We went for short-term or concrete gain in reality. We're going to build this kibbutz. We're going to pave this road. We're going to plant this tree. That's how we're going to, um, to advance. That's how we're going to progress. And, and I think it's important to understand that our enemies don't necessarily see it that way. So, you know, we might win in Gaza or tell ourselves that we've won in Gaza, but the day after the war, we wake up to realize that you know, the position of Jews worldwide has been destabilized, which is happening, which is clearly happening. Um, you know, you have you know, this group in Yemen, which has as its slogan or one of its slogans, death to the Jews. They've been brought into the war and are attacking Israel from the south. The president of Turkey, so an erstwhile ally of Israel, just compared Netanyahu to Hitler. He said there's no difference between Netanyahu and Hitler. And all of that erodes Israel's position in the Middle East and the broader Jewish position globally. And that is a victory for Hamas. So if Hamas, you know, finishes this war with devastation in Gaza, but a greatly weakened position for Israel, then that might be a victory for Hamas. Clearly, they're not, they don't count their own casualties as a defeat for them. That's not the way they, they think. They're playing a much longer game and a, and a religious game where these casualties are not just justified, but desirable. So our measure for success and their measure for success are two completely different things, which doesn't mean we need to abandon our measure for success. I think we need to destroy Hamas to the extent that that's possible. And, you know, I don't want us to cause any unnecessary harm to civilians. And we're seeing things in Gaza that are tragic and awful. But we have no choice. We need to eliminate this threat. I just wouldn't expect the elimination or the success of our operation in Gaza to necessarily bring about the what would seem like defeat to Hamas, because they're clearly fighting a different war than the one we're fighting. Which is probably part of our just complete misunderstanding of everything also until now. I, I want to, uh, before we wrap up, just go back with you to July. I remember you spoke at the Jerusalem at one of the Hafkanot or one of the uh, protests against the judicial reform. And you, you're, one of your books, uh, Pumpkin Flowers, right, is about your service and the outpost that you served in in uh, southern Lebanon during your IDF service. And a, a fantastic book to our listeners and viewers. You should definitely pick it up and read it. But you, you, what you said there was that we we can't become we have the potential to become a failed state. We shouldn't be going in that direction. We need to stop. And I'm curious as what you see now happening with the war and the failures that led to this. You kind of I was rereading some of the text of what you said in that speech back in July, which is you know just three months before, two and a half months before what happened on October seventh. I mean, the writing was on the wall to a large extent. We, we, we let this happen. Yes, that's true. I mean, we, many of us saw it. We saw this disintegration of Israeli society, this, these cracks appearing in Israeli society, not just in Israeli society, but in the military. And a, a lot of um, pilots from the Air Force had declared that they were not going to show up to serve. The Air Force is now flying 24-7, and clearly the survival of the state of Israel depends on them, and they were 
so distressed by what was happening that they were actually not going to show up to serve. So we're at an incredibly dangerous moment. And it was obvious that our enemies were looking at this and seeing an opportunity. They thought it looked a lot like societal collapse in Israel, which is, of course, when when you want to attack. And, you know, the intelligence guys who obviously missed a lot of things <laughs> or didn't miss that. And they'd warned the political leadership that, that, that this was being interpreted as a moment of opportunity by our enemies. And, and clearly it was. And that's part of what happens. And we had this incredibly irresponsible leadership that had put matters of life and death for Israeli mm -hmm. citizens in the hands of people who are completely incompetent, uh, you know, not just extreme politically, but just incompetent people like Itamar Ben-Gvir and there are others. And, um, and many of us were up in arms about it. And that's what I was, and that's why I spoke at the, at the protest. And I, I suggested that we were headed toward a kind of Lebanon-like situation where the state collapses into tribes and different sects that are at odds with each other. So officially you have a state, there is a country called Lebanon, but practically there is no country called Lebanon. And, and you know, that's, that's our neighbor. One of the funny things at the protest was that we, the, the slogans were about Israel turning into Hungary or Poland. The idea was, was that we were kind of sliding into a kind of authoritarianism. And the Israeli liberal camp is so obsessed with Europe that those are the scenarios that they that they saw. Hungary and Poland, two countries that are members of the EU and which are very far away from here. When clearly the scenario that we need to worry about is our neighbor, which is which is Lebanon. Uh, it's part of the kind of the Europe centric uh, attitude of, of Israeli liberals. You know, like the dream of the 90s was called Oslo. <laughs> the capital of Norway. It has nothing. Well, that's also maybe part of our problem is that we 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 are European Jews to an extent. Many of us who came here, and we think that we we we, we want to live in Europe or we want to pretend that we're living in Europe, and we're not living anywhere close to that's Europe. Right. Here with our absolutely, and I, and I think that we we have to realize that. And I've tried to write about that as much as I can, just looking at Israel through the eyes of the more than 50% of Israeli Jews who come from the Islamic world. And I think it's very, that's very important. And I think here too, we're at a moment of, um, of decision. I mean, either Israeli society will go in the direction of Lebanon, which is, you know, the uh, minister of internal security will have his own militia and this rabbi will have his own militia and you know, the this minister will put money toward his own partisan uh, goals and, and the, you know, the whole societal fabric of Israel will, will be torn apart, or we will have some kind of national rebirth at a moment of crisis. And the crisis will kind of bring forth a new kind of leadership. A lot of people are going to come back from the army at the end of this war, about 350,000 people in the reserves and their families, or maybe a million, a million and a half, maybe two million Israelis around the reserve army. And that there are agents for change here that could could lead to a, a rebirth and some new ideas about what the country is and where it needs to go. And that will save us from the Lebanon scenario, but it could go either way. And I think that we all have to be aware that Lebanon is really a possibility. I mean, it's, it's might, it might even be likely and we have to gather all of our energies and all of our tools and get our act together and stop fighting about things that don't matter. And we need to remove the current leadership that we have. Maybe maybe even the leadership that I like, maybe even the opposition, the people who I like, but all of, all of, all of whom have been party, I think, to creating this traffic jam at the top and this kind of terrible stalemate at the top. And we just need some creative thinking and we need to bring the rational Israeli majority 
into one political camp that can move that can move forward. And in my most optimistic moments, I think that will happen at a moment of crisis. And um, let's hope that it does. I hope so, but <laughs> unfortunately, I don't know that I'm as optimistic because I think that we will slide so quickly, unfortunately, back to the the way we were before and those months of like the weeks in July when you were making issuing those warnings. And I just, I hope we don't, but uh, but I am concerned that that might happen. But I, let's end on your optimistic note, Mati. So thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. So that was Mati Friedman talking about a bit of this and a bit of that, but more of how Hamas knew what it was doing. And also what's the day after going to look like politically, but also, you know, kind of where's the country going? And on that point, I want to tap into Avi and Shmuel and talk about the day after scenarios, because that is something that I think is really at the crux or at the at the heart of, of where this war is going. As we all know, military is pretty much a means for a political resolution or for, for a political solution to the conflict. Now, with the, I'm not advocating at all that we need to stop yet the military offensive. It's continuing while there is a, it seems that it's de-escalating to an extent uh, and some brigades are being discharged and reservists are being allowed home, the IDF is continuing in Gaza. But the question is, what is the day after going to look like? And and, and one of the, the problems I identify here is that we as a government or as a country have yet to really articulate what it is that we want. We've been doing the classic Israeli and I would say almost Netanyahu move, which is say what we don't want no Oslo, no PA, but we're not saying what we do want. So Shmuel, let me just start with you. Maybe walk us through the political gauntlet, if we could call it that, of why is it so complicated and difficult for our prime minister and his government to articulate what it is exactly that they want to see happen. And let's just add to that, that there was supposed to be a cabinet meeting that he canceled last week because God forbid that we should have that conversation. Well, having the conversation is one thing and, and deciding what we want is, is a different thing. Having the conversation is complicated purely because of political reasons. Uh, uh, Netanyahu uh, is trying to hold together a coalition in which there are members who would like to see all Gazans depart and, and speak openly about uh, proposing to Gazans uh, an option of, uh, of emigrating out of Gaza um, and into whatever, they don't mention the actual countries that are supposed to accept those Gazans, but they dream openly about something that uh, some people would call a, a transfer or a, um, a willing a willing willingness to, to be transferred on the part of, of the people of Gaza. And on the other hand, he has, this is an emergency government, so he has members of the Machanem uh, Amlachti camp, who are more traditional, you know, security type uh, Israeli centrist, and and have a much more, again, traditional approach to this problem. So, so to have a, the conversation is complicated is complicated because it can be uh, disruptive for him as he attempts to hold the coalition together. The more important question is. Um, is can we have this conversation? In, do we really know what we want? And here the problem is more complicated because Gaza is complicated because we don't have any good options 
that we see before us. We have to choose between many bad options. And when you have to choose between bad options, the natural thing to do is to just postpone your, your final decision to say, well, maybe something better will appear along the road. Maybe some miracle will, will save us from having to decide between these bad options. And the options are bad because the options are basically three. Either Israel controls Gaza, that's bad option, or we leave Hamas in power, that's an option that Israel wouldn't even consider, or we hand Gaza to someone who we, can, who we can't really trust and we don't really believe in, but is the only available other option that is not Hamas nor Israel. Uh, it could be the Palestinian Authority or some kind of uh, a Palestinian Authority supported by uh, Arab countries such as Egypt and, and, and the Saudis. It will be an Arab entity, a Palestinian-controlled Arab entity controlling Gaza in some fashion. And we, we pretty much know it's not going to be great. The, the best... In the best case scenario, it's going to be slightly less than okay. Uh, and that's why we aren't happy to, to quickly choose between these three not great options. So Avi, I mean, you know, Shmuel basically told us what the options are and how bad they are, right? Uh, and I think we kind of get that point. We also see the play of the politics in all of this. But what I have, what's been bothering me to an extent, and I'm curious what your thoughts are, is that by not articulating what it is that we want to see happen, it makes it look like we have no vision and there is only one option, and that is that we want to go back. And it doesn't help necessarily go back to Gaza. It doesn't help necessarily that there are figures within the coalition and within the government, ministers who are talking openly, discussing the possibility and the prospect of resettling the Gush Katif settlements that were removed and were, were disengaged from back in 2005. So the, the, the importance of articulating and presenting a vision and a plan is also meant to show the world and our allies, our key ally, the United States as an example, that we are not here just for the purpose of killing people in Gaza or destroying structures in Gaza, of course, out of self-defense with legitimacy. That's not my point. And it's not to resettle but it is because we want to create better security. Look, the uh, question of uh, setting a vision, what do we want, uh, is very important because uh, the vision that we are setting for the long run is dictating many parameters of the way we are behaving and others are performing at this moment and in the midterm. Uh, give you an example. Uh, if we want others to take care of the economic burden, uh, which entails in, uh, you know, uh, uh, having two million people uh, living in Gaza to sustain it, uh, food-wise, energy-wise, uh, medicine-wise, etc. Uh, if you don't want to do it yourself, uh, then you, you need others uh, to make it happen. Those others, so to speak, uh, whether from the region or from the uh, Western world, uh, they are not going to do it unless 
Israel is uh, declaring their vision, Israel's vision regarding the end game, uh, uh, basically a two-state solution. Uh, while throughout the journey, the long journey to that end, according to their perception, uh, the Palestinian Authority, a revitalized Palestinian Authority, should be engaged gradually in this process. This is, by the way, the vision of uh, President Biden and others. So Israel has must decide what its hair vision for the future. And there are two options. One is, uh, and it's not only with regard to Gaza, one is uh, maintaining the Jewish nature of Israel, which means that we have to divide the land between us and the Palestinian, that we have to separate ourselves from the Palestinians. Uh, and the other option is a continuous occupation and ultimately uh, uh, annexation, which is, in my view, the end of the uh, Jewish nature of Israel. So we have to make a decision in that regard, uh, and I know it's very difficult uh, for uh, the people of this country uh, to, to engage themselves with this question at this moment, and it's impossible for the current government even to discuss it. It's difficult for the people of this country to have that conversation, even when we're, the blood is not boiling after a massacre, the likes of what happened on October 7th. And the fact of the matter is, and I've long, you know, cried or not cried, but yelled out about this is is our indecision. Right. I mean, we all know how many governments Netanyahu has led that if he wanted to, he could have annexed all of the West Bank, but he decided not to. And he also decided not to separate. So there's always been this constant, I would call it more, we've made a decision not to make a decision. Kind of more of what Shmuel was talking about before. Sorry? If I may uh, react to what you've said, our policy of maintaining the status quo, so to speak, is a sort of a mirage because uh, during those many years of uh, maintaining the status quo, for example, the number of uh, Jewish settlers in the West Bank uh, uh, tripled itself, which means that uh, every day which is passing, we are losing the option uh, to separate the land and to maintain the Jewish nature of Israel. We have to be aware of it. Avi, I, I think you're 100% right. We do have to be aware of where we are, what exactly is the result and, and the price that we potentially will pay. But but Shmuel, I, I do want to go back to you for a moment because you, know, you, you do a lot of polling and a lot of surveys of what the Israeli public thinks and feels and, and what the pulse is of, of where Israelis are in their mindset. And I think that there's no question that today, and whether Avi is right or wrong, that is a fundamental question that we could argue hours about. But let's even assume he's right. Let's assume that fundamentally, on a principled level, he's right. Israel has to find a way to separate. But that's not going to happen right now in the aftermath of October 7th. And I think that what happened as a result is that Israelis are saying, okay, of course we can never outsource our security. That is the big takeaway. We have to remain in control. We have to keep over the security umbrella, whether it's Gaza or now also the West Bank. But then we have the Americans who talk to us about the two-state solution. We hear it in Biden's comments. We hear it in Blinken's comments. And I think a lot of Israelis say to themselves, what are these people thinking? Like, we're, we're, it's totally dis detached and disconnected. 
right? So who who is disconnected here? Are the Americans disconnected or are the Israelis disconnected? Well, there there is the uh, third option. Both both are disconnected. I, I must say that I am I am uh, one of those Israelis who are somewhat perplexed by the ability of of the American administration to speak about the two state solution at this point in time when when the situation is not ripe for any such conversation and whether Avi is right or wrong and Israelis debated this question for the past 40 years and will probably debate it for for the next at least couple of years um, this is not the time to convince Israelis that a two-state solution is what is uh, on the offing. They are much more concerned with short-time decisions that they must make regarding Gaza and then uh, uh, the, the problem we have on the Lebanese border. Thinking long-term about the two-state solution or what will be the, the final outcome of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I think that's premature. Um, and we have to first stabilize the situation. We are in a in a situation that that is that is quite dramatic uh, uh, at this point in time. And stabilizing Gaza, making sure it goes back to to normal life, making sure that all Israelis can go back to their homes near the Gaza border and near the northern border. That's the first priority for Israelis. And and hence to to talk about this long term idea of a two state solution, I think I understand why the Americans are doing it. But the more they do it, the more Israelis feel that that these people cannot provide us with with any type of of mediation or or assistance that is necessary for us uh, at this point. Uh, on the other hand, Avi is right in the sense that you know we can we can think what we want about the ultimate uh, necessary outcome for for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. One thing that we learned on October seventh is that ignoring it is not a is not a good option. You know, thinking that we can just leave it on the sideways and forget all about it will not solve the issue and will not guarantee Israel with the security that it wants. So, so we have two, two, again, two conflicting emotions here. On the one hand, we only want to solve the security issue and we don't at all want to deal with the long-term solutions for the Palestinian conflict. To, to, to be blunt, most Israelis right now, they don't much care about the Palestinians. They care about the security of the state of Israel and that's it. Uh, but on the other hand, yes, there is a reality and we, we must think about this reality. And although we've been hearing for the last 50 years that the situation in the West Bank is unsustainable, and it's been sustainable, it, it, it's been sustained. Yeah, it, it's been sustained for, for so long. Ultimately, we will have to carve some type of vision for the future of the state of Israel and of the relations between Israelis and Palestinians on this land. If Israel had different leadership, would the, the two-state solution as an eventual vision, would, would it become more possible for Israelis, number one? And let's connect that to the recent op-ed in the New York Times, which was urging Biden to recognize the Palestinian state with the borders to be determined later, 
Is there any chance do you see that happening under the current leadership of this president? Well, I think that the uh, uh, options of uh, President Biden in the coming months, and this is uh, an election year, we all must remember that, are quite constrained. Uh, so we can make uh, declarations which would be important, and it can take few diplomatic moves. But I think that, um, uh, you know, the, and I must refer to uh, what Shmuel had said, that you cannot deal with the current situation uh, in Gaza, what he termed, Shmuel, my friend, to stabilize the situation in Gaza uh, without the cooperation of Arab countries and Western countries. Now, if you don't have their cooperation, it means that Gaza in the day after is divided, I mean, the control of Gaza is divided between Hamas and Israeli occupation. This is the day after if you are reluctant to think about the day after the day after. Uh, if you are uh, if you are not ready to discuss the long term uh, of what you want with regard of the Palestinian territories, if you disregard the big question, what to do with five million Palestinian, three in the West Bank, two in Gaza. Now, you don't need to, uh, uh, you know, commit yourself at this moment necessarily to a strict two-state solution, but you do need to commit yourself to a vision which put an end to the Israeli occupation uh, someday in the future and separation uh, of Israel from the Palestinians. This is, a, I believe, this is necessary, not because we care much about the Palestinians, but because we want to maintain Israel as a Jewish, secure, democratic state. And the chance that Biden does something unilaterally? Well, he may do it. Uh, I guess that uh, he uh, would have uh, internal uh, consideration as well. Uh, but uh, already he uh, said that uh, he is for uh, two-state solution. Uh, he is against uh, uh, any uh, territorial grab of uh, Israel from Gaza. Uh, he is against uh, blockade around Gaza. So he puts and is uh, is against this connection of the West Bank. Uh, from Gaza. So all these issues are uh, in negation with the current Israeli government. Uh, and uh, we should forget, for those who are waiting for the option of a Republican uh, uh, presidency after uh, the next election in America, that, uh, that President Trump's uh, uh, deal of the century uh, was, in a way, uh, containing all the Oslo principles, a Palestinian state, uh, uh, territorial swaps, uh, and uh, safe connections, safe corridor between the West Bank and Gaza. So uh, don't hold your breath in that regard. Although not the withdrawal of settlements uh, and people who live in those, but but you're right that it had the main 
the main principles. Uh, Shmuel, we have a question from our mutual good friend, David Suisa, who asks, does BB have a conflict of interest given his personal legal troubles and the partners in his coalition? And can we trust that he's able and willing to make the right decisions? And, you know, uh, while David might think that we have a crystal ball into BB's head, <laughs> uh, we don't yet, but uh, I'm sure that everyone here has very strong opinions. Yeah, I, was, I, was, I was not trained as a, I was not trained as a psychologist. Uh, I, I can only I can only talk about what I see, and and clearly, uh, what we see in in Prime Minister Netanyahu is a prime minister who does not have the support of the trust of most of Israel's citizens. That's both unique because usually when countries go to war, their leaders tend to get a boost in public opinion. They get to they usually become much more popular and trustworthy in the eyes of their citizens. This did not happen uh, with Prime Minister Netanyahu. There are many Israelis who uh, feel that the time for Netanyahu to, uh, to depart, to end his long term as Prime Minister uh, had come. Uh, there is still some kind of debate. You know, there, there, are, there is about 70%, more than 70% of Israelis believe that Netanyahu should end his term as prime minister. The only question is whether he should, know, he should do it right now in the midst of war or right after the war in three months or six months time. Uh, that, that is still an open question. But I think that for Netanyahu to be able to lead this war, he needs to make a special effort. People do know that he has his personal legal problems. People do know that he wants to cling to power when most of the public does no longer wants him there. And thus they look at him with suspicious eyes and examine every move with the idea of him, um, um, you know, with, with, with the possibility of him considering things other than Israel's best interest uh, and, and, um, uh, those considerations infiltrating his uh, decision-making procedures. So I, I can't say for sure whether Netanyahu does or does not consider his personal affairs as he decides this or that. But I can say that Israelis are looking at him with such suspicion and that there are reasonable, reasonable uh, um, uh, features that make these suspicions um, you know, viable or, or, or reasonable. Uh, it, you know, but, but, but there's no question, and I think that we will all agree here, that this level of suspicion is not healthy for a country. And that uh, when, when, when we're, especially at a time of emergency, like we're in now, in a time of crisis, we're at war, there should be, I don't need them to be the most popular, I don't need them to be the best, but I would want to see I would want to feel that I can rely on them. In a, in a few minutes, the Supreme Court is about to release an important decisions that is going to be polarizing again for the Israeli public. Something that takes, takes us back to October 6th. The fights that we were having then were postponed, but aren't yet over. Thank you for joining us today. You can find all our episodes where you get your podcasts. Please share widely and give us a five-star review. 
will see you back here soon.